0: the world is like a ride at an amusement park and when you choose to go on it you think it's real because that's how powerful our minds are i can tell you from experience the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is don't think feel it is like a finger pointing away to the moon don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory
1: you take the red pill you stay in wonderland and i show you how deep the rabbit hole goes Hi everyone welcome back to the nicholas gregorati show i am your host nicholas Gregoratti, and i hope wherever you are in the world you are in great health and you're putting good energy out into the world today's show revolves around the subject of changing the story of your life a few months ago i i was reflecting deeply on this idea that your life is just a story and it's it's pretty well proven now that Most of us, the way we interpret the world is through creating stories about what happened or what happened to us or stories around our identity. That's how human beings make sense of the world. And that's why stories are so popular in our culture. It's because we are a uh, species in which stories play an exceptionally important role in how we process and move through the world. And so when I really internalized this understanding, I got to thinking, well, if your life is just a story, then you might as well make it a great one. And I've really gone out of my way to focus on making, on changing the parts of my story that, you know, don't suit me or don't help me achieve my objectives and exaggerating the parts that do. So... Today's guest has written a book about this, it's called Change Your Story, Change Your Life. His name is Rich Curtis. And uh, I actually recorded this episode over a year ago. And I was wondering to myself, whether that conversation he and I had over a year ago was what planted the seed in my mind, for me to start thinking about the idea of changing your story and making it a great one. I'm I'm sure it probably was. Uh, Either way, Rich and I have a pretty cool conversation about the concept of changing the story of your life. And I think you guys will get a lot out of it. Enjoy. Hey, brothers, welcome back. I'm your host, Nick Gregoradis. Today's guest is a story expert, adventurer, family man, real estate mogul might be too strong of a word, but successful real estate guy. Um, And A whole bunch of other things. I'm super excited to speak to Mr. Rich Curtis. Thanks for coming on the show, brother.
0: Thanks for having me, Nick.
1: I'm really excited to be here. I should have mentioned in your intro that you are also the author of Change Your Story, Change Your Life, which is something that is pretty close to my heart because several years ago I was introduced to this idea that we are just a collection of stories that we keep telling ourselves about the things that happened in the past and who we are. Um, and if, you, as you said in, with the title of your book, if you change those stories, if you change the story, you keep telling yourself, it's going to have a, a change in who you become and how you move through the world and the results you have. So I'm, I'm pretty interested to hear a little bit more about that, specifically how you got onto this this line of thinking.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't set out to be uh, a self help author and, and coach. At the, at the time, this sort of realization dawned on me, I was um, a successful real estate entrepreneur. I coached, but uh, with, within the realm of real estate. And then, then this all happened, and it really changed my whole focus, which was in 2013, uh, suddenly and unexpectedly, in about 41 days before my first child was born, uh, my mom died. And I had a really bad story about the day my mom died that I didn't know that that was in there that basically plunged me into two years of depression and suffering. Uh, you know, I, I gained thirty pounds. I was angry and irritable all the time. I was waking up and sitting on the side of the bed in the morning, sort of having that moment which I'd never had previously in my life of thinking, like, is is this all there is? Is this all there's going to be? Is this all I'm going to do? And I, I didn't know it was what was the source of all this suffering, but I knew I was suffering and I knew it was bad. And about two years after my mom died, so I'd been going through this for, for a little over two years, I had this big epiphany. and I think you know some, some people will have their big epiphanies, you know, taking ayahuasca on the slopes of the Andes under the stars, and others maybe with a religious leader in a sweat lodge. But unfortunately, my epiphany came circling the Costco parking lot in my truck, screaming into my phone at my brother, having, having a fight with my older brother but it's probably the most important fight I ever had because at one point in this fight, I screamed out into the phone, hey, I'm failing you, I'm failing Ann, and we failed mom. We just stood there and watched her die. She fought for all five of us every day of her life. I'm the youngest of five boys. And we didn't fight for her. We just stood there and watched her die. And uh, I hit the brakes when I said that. I, it hit me instantly like a ton of brakes. I hit the brakes. In fact, the unbeknownst to me, there's a little security guard in his golf cart that had been chasing me because somebody must have phoned in the crazy man circling Costco yelling. And uh, he, he almost rear-ended me. And I had no idea that story was inside of me. Never in the two years of all the suffering I'd been through had I actively thought to myself I failed my mom. Never had my brothers, you know, any of the four of them said anything like that, my father and my wife, none of us had ever said out loud or actively engaged, not even sort of late night by myself with a whiskey on the couch, had I ever thought I failed my mom. So here it was this story that had been caused me all this suffering, all pain um, that was definitely a huge part of me. And so once I was out in the open and I could see it and I'd gotten it outside of myself, I had to ask myself a couple of important questions. One, is it true? And two, even if it's true, does it serve me? And, and the answer was no, it's not you know, true. And, and it's definitely not serving me that that story is killing me. So I did a couple of things I, I set about looking at the day my mom died and actively rewriting that story with um, equally true but positive bits of information. And then I went on this two-year deep dive. I call it like a personal PhD or a black belt in the the science of story and the the science of happiness um, because I'm, I'm not into the sort of hooey-wooey end of things. If you are, that's great. I am don't mean that insulting, but I like these things that are backed by science that I know are going to work. So at four in the morning, my dad had asked me to pull the DNR order off the computer and bring it down to the hospital, which if you don't know what that is, DNRs do not resuscitate, which basically means, hey, if we know this is only going one way today, you need to stop working on me and let it happen. And uh, my background is as a raft guide. um, And I'd been a professional rescuer on a lot of occasions in that capacity. So I knew exactly what that meant. I didn't want to hand that over. In fact, I asked my mom to rescind it because you can verbally rescind it at the hospital and, and she wouldn't, she was cognizant enough to say she wanted that to stand. So I, I turned that over to the hospital, even though I knew what that meant. And that's not how I wanted the day to go. Certainly my mom was a devout Catholic. I certainly uh, am not, but we, so we got the priest in for her final sacrament. She had five boys. One of my brothers um, had been out celebrating marriage equality, which had just been voted in the the night before she died. Uh, And he had turned his phone off when he went to bed and we couldn't get to him. So I sent a friend over to his apartment to break into his secure apartment in San Francisco and roused him and get him to the hospital. So she'd have all five of her kids there when she died. We got uh, a bunch of cousins, aunts, uncles, people who loved her. By the moment of her death, there were 18 people in the room, each of which had at least a you know, hand or uh, on her somewhere, comforting her in her last moments. My dad, they, they had this amazing relationship and he couldn't get into the bed with her. So I got the nurse over. I couldn't figure out the bed rail. I got the nurse over to drop the bed rail so dad could get in and cuddle her. And uh, she had this mask on, this oxygen mask. My dad said, it's freaking her out. She never liked having things on her face. So I asked the nurse, what's that doing? She said, well, that'll extend her life maybe 10 minutes. So I said, get that mask off her face, you know? And then in the final moments, and I don't know if you've had the experience of being there at the moment that that life ends, and I don't know what everybody's reaction to that is, but with me, with my mom, my reaction was to run. I wanted to run. I wanted to not be there, not have it happen, not experience this, but I stood there. I kept my eyes on her eyes. I kept my hand on her leg, and I stood there every moment until she took her last breath, which is probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. So when I really looked back at that day, although my original story could be said to be true because of her DNR, we just stood there and watched her die. The real truth was I did everything I could for my mom to support her in dying her way. So I fought for my mom in every way I could while while respecting her right to die her way. So I ended up uh, evolving that story through the story evolution process that I teach in the book. From uh, we just stood there and watched Mom die. We didn't fight for her. To I fought for my mom every way I could while respecting her right to die her way. And then I used uh, you know the, the neuroscience research to implant that new story in my subconscious and make it the only story that's triggered when I think about my mom. And that once I did that, the freedom that came with that, the 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 lightness and the power that came from deciding. I'm writing these stories. I'm in control. I'm the architect of my own reality here. These things aren't true, they're my subjective truth that I created for myself. You have to ask yourself, why am I writing such crappy stories for myself? Why, why do I have all these stories about not being good enough about what I won't achieve? I tell my clients all the time if you wouldn't jump up on a coffee table at a cocktail party and scream this story to the room, it's a bad story, right? And and if you're honest, late night on the couch with a whiskey, the stories you tell yourself about not being good enough, about never never gonna find a partner, never gonna be successful, all these really horrible stories we have ourselves, those are stories you would never ever say out loud to somebody else. And once you learn that you're in control of it and you learn sort of the the right levers the right neuroscientific levers to pull to be in control of this then you can be in control and upcycle any outcome in your life
1: yeah i mean it's, it's such a profoundly powerful tool i was just struck with the thought while you were describing that that the past literally does not exist it does not exist it's gone it's forever gone and so you can really just change it to suit your purposes because the thing that you have in your mind the story, the current story, it may represent the facts that happened accurately, but that doesn't really mean anything because whatever happened is gone. So you might as well just create something that suits you better.
0: Yeah. And the accuracy of those facts is, is far more subjective than you think. And I don't mean that the sort of dangerous ground with the sort of political post-truth movement we've just been through. And I don't mean it in that way at all. There are things that are empirically true. If I, if I hit you in the head with a chair, that chair existed and that hurt, right? That's a fact. But when it comes to our personal facts that we compile our stories with, we're compiling those via our senses. And we have this death grip because our senses, our five senses, the way we interact with the world, we have this death grip on the fact that what we experience through our senses is truth. And unfortunately it's, it's not. So like sight is the one people hang on to the most that so what I see is true. But the fact is what you're seeing is not a direct projection of the world. What you're seeing is a personal virtual truth that has been compiled through your emotional state at the time, your past experiences. So I'm looking at a picture of you on my computer screen. If my wife was sitting next to me seeing that same picture and we drew you, we would not draw the same person, not because we both suck at drawing, but because we're literally seeing a different human being as filtered through our experiences. So once you get to the point where you can let go of the even the truth of the facts involved in the stories you've created, you can really begin to you know morph and adjust those stories in ways that help you. NASA discovered this in the early astronaut program. They thought being upside down would make the astronauts go crazy in, in zero G. So they made them these glasses that inverted the world. So uh, they had to wear them for 30 days, even while they slept. And it made the whole world look upside down all the time. In the first few days, they did go a little nutty and people tripped and hurt themselves and all, all the things you would expect happened. And then day 26, one of the astronauts woke up and the world was right side up again but he was still wearing his goggles. And by day 30, the same thing happened for all the other astronauts in the study because their brain had been on this planet for 20, 30 years, whatever age they were at the time, and it knew what the world was supposed to look like. And so even though it was getting a different signal, it decided this isn't true. This isn't what the world should look like. I know what it looks like. And it inverted that image and put the world right for them again. So that you are taking in the information to compile your stories through senses that are heavily filtered by your emotions and your past experiences. And so to that extent, as long as you're rewriting your stories with things that are true, equally true, but positive, you are in control of the total story from beginning to end.
1: Yeah, I, I'm pretty much inclined to agree with almost everything you've just said. So tell me about the technique that you use to change your story. and You also mentioned that you had some some other tips on on hacking your neurology to to maximize well-being and happiness. I'd love to hear about those as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the, the story evolution process um, that I teach in the book and, and that I work with my clients with um, will help you take any story from one that doesn't serve you and, and turn it into one that does uh, serve you. And it's an evolution process because you're not throwing out the original story and just writing something new. You know, I, I tell people this has to be based in fact. If you're, if you're making 10 grand a year right now and you say you're going to be a millionaire by the end of the year... Your sort of intellectual immune system—that snarky guy in the back of your head that says "nah"—he's gonna he's gonna rear his ugly head and he's gonna start screaming, and you're gonna have a hard time latching on to that. But if you're changing that story into "I have all the skills and tools I need to become financially successful," it's harder to argue with that. You do, if you're willing to do the work, you do have the skills and tools you need. And so you're you're not making up stories that just aren't true or are pie in the sky or hooey, wooey. You're evolving this story from one that doesn't serve you into one that does.
1: Yeah, it's a reframe uh, in neurolinguistic programming parlance, right? It's just yeah, a reframe.
0: I, yeah, exactly. And in fact, um, I tell people the reason story is important is because it's the programming code for the brain. If you were to sit down to program your website right now, you wouldn't type in make the background red, right? You would type something in, in HTML. Well, stories are the HTML in your brain or, or in NLP parlance, they, uh, they would call them you know filters, right? These are your filters. And so stories allow you to reach into that. You know, if, if you're an NLP student, they allow you to reach into that filter database and change the filters. And, and, and if you study NLP, you know that you know their basic premise is nothing gets in if it doesn't meet your preset filters. So the only way to take a new information evolve or change is to change the filters. And the story evolution process allows you to do that.
1: Okay. And the, the evolution process works by, if you just want to give us a simple rundown of how you do it.
0: Yeah. So the, there's basically, there's four steps. You're going to first you know, decide that your story isn't true and that there could be a better version of it, that it's not serving you. And it's easy to find those stories. You, you can just take any area of your life that you're not happy with and you've got a story there. Ask yourself, what's my story? Is it true? Even if it's true, is it serving me? That's your pre-work. Now you've got the story you want to rewrite, like mine about my mom. We didn't fight for mom. We just stood there and watched her die. So you, you literally want to write it down because this story has been a part of you. It's internal. Um, so you need to get it out of you to work on it. So you write it down. I recommend doing this in longhand, not on the computer because it's just a, a, a better connection, a, a kinesthetic connection between you and the story and the words if you're writing it out longhand. And then you're going to say it out loud. Step two is to say it out loud. And I recommend actually videotaping yourself with your cell phone when you do it. So get in a quiet room by yourself and video yourself with the phone, saying it out loud the first time you do it. Because you'll see on your face the parts of that story that cause you pain. You'll see your, your mouth turned down. You'll see your eyes turned down. You'll see yourself wince even. You'll see physically the pain that story is causing you then you're going to just tick off the parts of the story that aren't serving you or causing you pain. You're going to do that basically by reading it and deciding how you feel about it. And by watching that video, seeing how it hurts you. The video also allows you to videotape yourself telling the new story that does serve you and see the massive difference on your face between those two experiences. So you've written it down, you've said it out loud, you've ticked off the parts that don't serve you, then you're going to rewrite it. And you're not going to wholesale rewrite it. I didn't go from we failed mom we just stood there and watched her die too i fought for my mom in every way i could while respecting her right to die her way in one step you rewrite you know each section so you know we just stood there and watched her die right we look at that and say well is that true no here's the things i did and so the story was much longer at times it was probably 5 or 6 iterative steps of rewriting it so you're just going to take the first part of the story that you ticked off that doesn't serve you. And you're going to rewrite that. And then you're going to read the whole story out loud again. Okay. It feels a little bit better, but it still doesn't work. Take the second statement that doesn't work for you. Rewrite it. Now reread it. Does it work for you? No. Keep going until you say it out loud and you feel light, you feel inspired, you feel set free. You feel like it's a story that both represents you and is doing good things in your life. And then you've, then you've made it. Then the story's solid. And that's where step four comes in. And, and step four is the work. Sometimes in the personal development industry, we're a little bit complicit in helping people sort of rename and keep their problems, right? Like I've got a bad story. And then we keep on going Um, and and saying, you know, this is going to take 30 to 120 days of hard work doesn't sell books. Like let me change your life in the next 10 minutes sells books. So I'm really clear with with people in the book and with my clients that step four, which is the most important step actually is hard work. You're going to do the work to implant the new story in your subconscious. So that old story has been a part of you for a long, long time. You have neural path carved right to that stories that are on instant you know, recall. Like if, if someone mentioned my mom, boom, that's the story that comes up, right? Mm-hmm. You can think of it if you're old enough to have experienced a record player, you can think of it like if you take a record player and you bang your hand on the table next to it, the needle's always going to bounce to the deepest rut, right? And the deepest mm-hmm. ruts are our traumas, our bad stories. So you need to carve new pathways to the new story. So you're going to write the story down and you're going to read it to yourself at least twice a day, at least right when you wake up and right when you go to bed. If you can put it up on the mirror, if it's an appropriate story where other people can see it and you can put it up on the mirror and, and do it even more than twice a day, that's good. The minimum is 30 days, 60 to 90 days is is better. And you're just going to keep doing this until the old story doesn't get triggered anymore. And it's not it's not a linear process. You might you know get there and then four months down the road, somebody says something that triggers your old story and then you go back and you do it over again. And then one sort of additional hack that speeds this up is making the new story part of your lived oral tradition. So for the two years I was suffering, nobody knew. Men are really good at hiding their suffering. We're, we're trained to do it from the time we're Very children. Very true. Very true. <laughs> And so I was, you know, a high-earning real estate entrepreneur. I was a pretty good dad, as good a dad as I know how to be. I was probably kind of a crappy husband. I was difficult to be around, I think. In that time, my wife gave me a lot of grace. But nobody really knew that I was depressed. Even, even now, to say it out loud and say and admit I was depressed, I feel that twinge of not wanting to say that. Right. We're sure. like said, we're, we're trained as men not to admit that. And so I hid this really well. So the story that we just stood there and watched mom die, that was not part of my lived oral tradition. I was hiding that. And you too, and everybody else, generally speaking, are hiding our worst stories. We only tell them to ourselves. So the power in taking the new positive story and making it part of your lived oral tradition is you've now given this story a place that the other one never had. So you're gonna take you know a trusted friend or someone that you feel comfortable sharing the story with. You're gonna go out to dinner and drinks with them. We're, we're able to do that again now in the world. That's kind of cool. So you can do that. And um, you're gonna tell them, hey, I had this bad story and here's my new version. Here's my new story. And that is scary. That is more vulnerable than most men are willing to get in a lot of cases. But I'll tell you, every single time I've done this. And I've done this with complete strangers at conferences. Th- there's an outpouring of emotion. There's a connection. The other person will then share with you their struggles. And it is in sharing our struggles. It's sharing our beautiful fallibility as human beings that we make real connection, not this sort of feigned perfect highlight reel of life that we all share online. So if you're willing to, to share you know these real things that you've been through, especially man-to-man, there's a lot of growth. There's a lot of connection. There's a lot of help that could be done there. So that's there's a lot of information there, but the basics are write it down, say it out loud, check off the parts that don't work for you, rewrite it, and then say it to yourself over and over and over again, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever it takes to make sure anytime you're triggered for that story, it's the new, powerful, good version that comes up for you.
1: Yeah. I. You know, it's no surprise that this works because human beings are inherently creatures that yeah, imbue meaning to the world through story and that's why star wars is as popular as it is and marvel is as popular as it is and we, why we love movies and novels and entertainment that that you know takes us on through these incredible adventures through the the symbolism inherent to story and um it it just makes sense to me that to use something like this because it's basically exploiting our inherent software and hardware predispositions to gain a result. So it just makes a lot of sense to me.
0: Yeah, that's right. If you can get to the point where you understand you are not, uh, from a biological perspective, you're not particularly special or unique. You are a product of this 12, year old, uh, 12 million year old monkey brain. And so your brain is going to work the same as my brain for the most part in these basic ways. That's why you know, Star Wars, Spielberg, he read Joseph Campbell, right? The power of symbolism and and meaning. He was a big student of Campbell. And then he just took those archetypes and built them into the Skywalker story. So it instantly connected with everybody because it's the same religious tropes and stories that we've been digesting from the ancient Greek times, right? So the Star Wars was part of our DNA before it existed. Um, and, And the power of that story affects us in the oldest part of our brain. And this is where the science gets interesting there's a woman at UCLA, uh, an education neuroscience um, professor, Mary Helen Emerdino Yang. She does. Um, really incredible research on the power of story, and she's found if I tell you an inspiring story, maybe even telling you the story of my mom or stories like uh, you know the uh, the Skywalker story. Even if you tell someone an inspiring story, and then you put their brain on an fMRI machine, you see three different areas light light up: the the medial prefrontal cortex, which isn't as exciting in this case, uh, does some cool things for you, but but not in this sense. And then you're going to see the um, the insula, which is actually two areas on the left and right that are responsible for your gut function. That's why you actually have, you can feel these stories in your gut. You can can have that tingling sensation or feel them in your gut, these inspiring stories, because you've actually stimulated the part of your brain that controls your gut function. But more interestingly, you'll see your medulla light up, which is kind of the oldest part of your brain is your lizard brain. This is responsible for such mundane tasks as keeping your blood pressure up, keeping your breathing when you're sleeping. This is the biological center of your brain. Such that, you know, in action sports, if you take a hit in this part of your brain or in a car crash, if you take a significant enough hit, they, they can't even keep you alive for more than 10 or 15 minutes on life support. That's how important this is. So you'd think we would, you know, evolutionarily, we would have built like an impenetrable firewall around that part of the brain. But instead, when I tell you an inspiring story, boom, that lights up, which means two things. It's getting electricity and blood flow, which means we've just altered you on the neural level in the survival center of your brain by telling you a story. And if an inspiring story can do that, think of how much damage all these awful stories you have about yourself are doing. Our... Our stories are inextricably linked to our survival. We, you know, that's why people are afraid of public speaking or being ostracized from their group, right? If you were ostracized, you know, in the caveman days, you die. So that that connection to our social selves and to our stories is inextricably linked to our biological survival. So, um, if you just learn how these mechanisms work, you can exploit them to get what you want out of life.
1: Yeah, and then that's that's what I'm all about. Like, let's get through this using the tools we have at our disposal to lead the best possible lives. And um, it sounds like you're onto something. I really appreciate your time, Rich. And if if those listening want to find out more about the book, um, which is called Create Your Story, Create Your Life, or any of your other work, where should they go? What's the first place for them to go
0: to? Uh, If if you want the book, it's on Amazon in all three formats. Uh, You just search Change Your Story, Change Your Life, Rich Curtis. There are a couple other books with that name. So just add the Rich Curtis in there. It's the blue and yellow one. Um, so you can get that in all three formats, including audiobook read by me. If you're interested in, in what we're doing in terms of uh, story coaching, group coaching, personal coaching events, all that stuff, you can check that out at uh, richcurtis.com.
1: Awesome. Rich, thank you so much for your time, my man. Really appreciate you. And I'm going I'm to do some work on my own stories right now.
0: <laughs> all right, right on. Thank you so much for having me on. Many, many years ago, I read,
1: I think the first self-help book I was ever exposed to as a kid. And if I'm not mistaken, it was called Life's Little Instruction Book, and that really influenced me. That little book, my dad gave it to me one day, and one of the there was a series of I think a hundred or so tips on how to live, lead a good life, and one of them said, "Live a good, honest life, so that when you're old, you can look back and enjoy it a second time." And that really stuck with me. I think there's something powerful in that. And if we continue that into or or meld that with the analogy of your life being a story, when you get to the end of your life, you want to be able to read that book and be reading an amazing adventure novel instead of a a textbook, right? Or at least that's what I know I want to do. I I don't want to... uh, if I, if I were reading a story about my life at the end of it, I'd want it to be an amazing story. And we all have the power to change our stories. There's no doubt about that. That's one of the gifts of being human is you have a will. And in many cases, it's it's free will, not always, but in many cases, it's free will. And you can use that to, to literally rewrite a large part of the story. And so I urge you to go check out Rich's book. And even if you don't, just start, just start making better stories out of your life. It'll be worth it. Hope you guys have a fantastic week. And I'll be back with you soon with another episode. Until next time, remember, we're all alone in this together.